Hello and welcome to this other, this next episode of uh, the Kingdom Fundamentals series. Uh, before I begin the broadcast, just a quick message. If you haven't done so already, make sure you head on to thrivingonpurpose.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with all of our news and updates. This will also enable you to follow our ministry despite all the censorship that's going on. And while you're at it, make sure you check out our unique Kingdom Patriot and Remnant Arising merch, jewelry, and apparel, of which I am wearing this wonderful cap right now. And if you feel led to partner with this teaching ministry, uh, because it's blessed you, you can do so. You can sow a seed, or you can go on our website directly, thrivingonpurpose.com, and click the Give button. Now, dear friends, I have taken far too much of your time, and let's get on with this week's broadcast. So we're continuing our series based on my book, uh, on the Kingdom of God, my epic book, Kingdom Fundamentals. Uh, it's a 355-page book, so it's going to be a long series. It's very thorough, but uh, I hope it has blessed you. If it has blessed you, make sure you click like on the video and make sure you share it also as well. And make sure that you subscribe to the Thriving on Purpose YouTube channel. So... As we continue our uh, going through the book, um, we are going to continue understanding the kingdom of God. This is part 2B. We are continuing chapter 1, which is titled The Glorious Government of God, in which we explore the constituents of God's kingdom. So in the last episode, I ended by talking about the different ministries in the kingdom of God. And if you remember... Uh, that episode, I was mentioning how the word ministry basically means service. So in any given church or government, we have ministries. In church, a ministry is a service. And in our government, a ministry is also a service. Now we're going to dive in a little deeper in this by considering how these differing services bless us regularly. And I'm talking about now the ministries that we find in the kingdom of God. So we find in the kingdom of God a ministry of justice. The kingdom of God has a judicial system, a ministry of justice. There are indeed courts in heaven. Are you surprised? You shouldn't be. God is called a judge in many places throughout scripture. And as a judge, he does preside over a court. The Bible says in Psalm 82, verses 1 and 2, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, small g. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And the New Living Translation renders the same passage in this way. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Isn't that interesting? Furthermore, the Bible also tells us that Jesus is our advocate or lawyer before the Father in court. That is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He defends us against the accuser of the brethren. Satan, 
who accuses believers day and night before the Father. That's from Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. In Daniel and in Revelation, we are told that there are judicials, judicial proceedings involving open books, books plural, in the heavenly courts. Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of the book, bearing his name, is that of a courtroom, the courts of heaven. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we read, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. I love that term for God, by the way, just parenthesis here. I just love the term Ancient of Days. I think it's, it's, it's so, there's so much uh, prestance to it. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool. Uh, like pure wool, I, I mean. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So we're talking a huge courtroom. The court was seated and the books were opened. That is an amazing passage. And in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, we get a clear picture of the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There is so much to learn about God's laws, his administration, and the courts of heaven. Too much to write about here or to teach about here. However, Christian teacher and author Robert Henderson has written a whole series of books to help believers better understand how the courts of heaven operate and how believers can access this particular heavenly realm through prayer and intercession to plead cases and receive justice from the king. Here is what Robert Henderson said about the power and impact of these heavenly proceedings. He said, once the court is in session and the books are open, cases can be presented, legal precedents set, and the dominion rights of principalities removed from nations. I mean, we're talking about, like it described it earlier when, when I read that passage, uh, I think it's in Daniel, how many thousands are there? It's such an impressive description. We can only imagine when the Ancient of Days comes and sits in that courtroom or, or court 
hall. It's, it's, it's not even a room, it's a gigantic place. We can only imagine how impressive that must be. In heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, there is also a ministry of defense, a ministry of defense. Every kingdom or nation has an army. The purpose of the ministry of defense is to protect the country and its citizens from all threats and enemies, foreign and domestic. The kingdom of God has an immensely powerful army serving the king. Honestly, I used to believe that I was part of God's army. As a man seeking a testosterone rush, a clearer identity and validation, this gave me a great sense of worth. I told myself I was a warrior in the army of the Lord. And while I do wage warfare against the enemy on occasion, the Bible doesn't support this notion very much, especially under the New Covenant. As New Covenant believers, we are not usually referred to as an army. Rather, we are said to be his bride, the church. We are also compared in many instances to sheep. So, yes. In this war, we are more akin to civilians than we are to soldiers. I know, bummer, right? So, although we were given tremendous authority and power as citizens, we are not his army per se. Nonetheless, you can be sure it doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn spiritual warfare. There are aspects of kingdom warfare that beckons civilians to bravely take up arms, while the kingdom's war is fought on a cosmic scale. We are nonetheless involved in a very civil war here in the earth realm. And I know many civilians who can kick some serious spiritual butt. So every believer should learn spiritual self-defense and put on the whole armor of God, as stated in Ephesians 6, 11. In fact, I strongly advise my listeners to learn spiritual warfare, spiritual self-defense and offense, and learn how to counter enemy tactics. Nevertheless, and as disappointing as this may sound to some of you, as it was for me, we are not the main army in God's kingdom. We act more like a militia. As a testimony to his kingdom, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. That's from John 18, 36. Now, obviously, we see from this passage that Jesus' fighting servants were not his disciples. So he was refer referring to other servants. In Matthew, we are told who these are. After the disciples put up a fight, sword in hand, to prevent Jesus from being captured, he said, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, 
and he will provide me with more than 12 legion of angels. That's from Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53. So here, Jesus was saying to Peter, civilian, this is not your job. Yes, by now, you've surely guessed that the angels act as the main military force in God's kingdom. In fact, they are the military, the secret service, and the royal guard. Angels, whom we will cover more fully in chapter 6, come in various shapes, sizes, ranks, and fulfill many roles for the king. Although they are servants, some are messengers, some are warriors, some are guardians, and some are secret service and intelligence, or spies. Angels possess many inviolable superpowers, what we could call superpowers, such as super strength, near invulnerability, super speed, super intelligence, and shape-shifting abilities, among other things. They use these in the service of the king and on behalf of you and me on a daily basis. Sometimes I like to reflect on how many times angels have come to help or rescue me without my being aware. I know of a few that I am certain of, a few moments, and I, and I remember them fondly. However, I also know without a doubt that many times I got rescued or helped while I was unaware of an angelic presence. And the good news is that there are at least twice as many good angels as fallen ones, as Revelations, uh, Revelation 12, 4 and 7, uh, 12, verse 4 and 7 through 9 attests. We are therefore, as Hebrews 12, 22 says, blessed with an innumerable company of angels. So as citizens, we are never outnumbered or outgunned. Our king has blessed us with the most powerful military ever with beings of tremendous power. Most of the time, they act on our behalf, unseen or recognized, to protect us from evil and harm. The Bible says that the king himself shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This is from beloved Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to have a little sip of water before I tackle the Ministry of Education. <clears throat> so, there is also in the Kingdom of God a Ministry of Education. The Apostle Paul tells tells us about the ministry of education and how it relates to the citizens of the kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, he tells us, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love so this aptly called fivefold ministry fivefold because there are five main of ministries that pertain to the edification and teaching of the body of Christ, the saints, so apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This fivefold ministry is meant to be our kingdom ministry of education. But what's more is that we are we were all given the ultimate teacher residing within, who teaches us all things. That's from John 14, 26 and 1 John 2, 27. The Holy Spirit is meant to guide us into all truth as john 16 13 says so that we also have the holy ghost who resides on the inside who testifies who resonates in our spirit when we hear the truth spoken to us so he confirms it now let's talk about more kingdom elements as you get to know your constitution better and we saw earlier that that was the bible we saw that was in the previous uh, broadcast you will get to know more about all the kingdom is and has to offer you as a citizen. I remember how exciting it was for me when I began to understand kingdom elements, principles, and concepts. It made the scriptures pulsate with new life and revelation for me. The kingdom of God also has a currency. The kingdom's currency is not the dollar, the yen, or the euro. No, the kingdom's currency is their, the, the citizen's faith. So we will dive deeper in this truth in the later chapter. But we will explore how faith is the currency of the kingdom. The kingdom of God also has ambassadors as citizens of the kingdom living in a foreign land called Earth. We act as ambassadors for the king of glory. As such, we represent the king's will, his rule, and his authority wherever we go. The kingdom of God also has an economy. Now, the wealth of the king is limitless. He owns it all. He owns it all. There are over 2,000 passages that relate to money, wealth, or possessions in our constitution, the Bible. And, as any good king would, God delights in the prosperity of his servants. We are told this in Psalm 35, 27. What an encouraging verse that is, that God delights in the prosperity of you and me. There is also, as I mentioned earlier, a secret service in the kingdom of God. Some of God's angels act as the military, others as guards, others as messengers, others are part of the secret service. 
they go undercover on secret missions to inform, warn, help, assist, or rescue God's children daily. And now let's talk about a clash of kingdoms. Another element that most worthwhile kingdoms have is an adversary. Kingdom Fundamentals was meant to dig deeper in the understanding of the kingdom, our kingdom, the kingdom of God. Therefore, it was on purpose that I tried to avoid as much as possible giving too much attention to the kingdom of darkness. Nevertheless, since as believers we find ourselves at the crossroads of two kingdoms clashing, it is necessary to address it. All great kingdoms in history were at war at one time or another. The kingdom of God is no exception. Although spiritual in nature, the kingdom is and has been at, has been at war for millennia. This war does contain, contain some similarities with earthly kingdoms clashing. But it, is all, it also has major differences. Earthly wars are fought over wealth or territory. And while these elements are part of the biblical conflict, the major difference is found in this. This war is fought, is fought over men's souls. Make no mistake about it. Satan does indeed have a kingdom of his own. Consider these scriptures. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. It says, The devil took him up, speaking of Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 20, verses 20, verse 26 to, I think it's 28, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. All, how then will his kingdom stand? So again, we hear that Satan has a kingdom. Colossians 1.13, for he, God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Furthermore, the devil, as the general of the enemy army, has acquired quite a following over the centuries and since his original rebellion. He is not leading a haphazard group of disorganized factions. No. He leads a highly organized, hierarchical and I hope I pronounced that way, hierarchical and efficient force that is hell-bent, pun intended, on dethroning the king. Keep in mind that Satan used to be a general in the hierarchy of heaven. That is where he learned the rank and file of an efficient fighting force. In other words, he learned how a kingdom operates while in heaven. Therefore, he learned 
from the best. The Apostle Paul clearly warned us and reminded us of this fact in his, epistles to, in his epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verses 12 and 13, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Paul talks here about rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil. In other words, we struggle against fallen angels, Satan's angelic generals assigned over territories, towns, cities, states, and countries, demonic entities of all kinds who influence, indoctrinate, tempt, and torment believers and unbelievers alike. Also, while Satan has a spiritual army, he has a very human one as well. They're called the tares among the wheat. Just as God has servants and children upon the earth, so does the devil have distinct human agents doing his will on the earth to counter the kingdom of God at every turn. Jesus spoke of the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the brood of vipers and the wolves in sheep's clothing. Concerning the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus explained it to his disciples and he said, when his disciples came to him, they asked, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is from Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43. Have a little drink of water. Indeed, if we are willing to have eyes to see and ears to hear, we will recognize that there are tares on the earth. There are those who are not of God, but are of the devil. They serve him and him alone. They infiltrate, subdue, divide, and conquer for their master, Satan. They look just like wheat, but are not. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits in Matthew 7, 16. 
It shocks most Christians when I tell them that these people known as tares cannot be redeemed. And yet, this is strongly indicated in Scripture. Respected theologian J.I. Packer said, The idea that all are children of God is not found in the Bible anywhere. So as you engage further in serving God's kingdom, always keep these things in mind as you will surely encounter many tares who will oppose you forcefully. In fact, and this is just me adding right now, we are in a time, we are in an epoch where it's obvious that there are tares among the wheat. The wheat. There are these uh, people, these uh, servants of the devil literally children of the devil doing his bidding and they are in my opinion irredeemable they have passed a point of no return or they were never redeemable to begin with but the point is uh and, and this may shock some people i think there are people that you will if, if knowing if they are tares when a, when a person is a tear, praying for their salvation is a waste of time. Now, of course, you might argue, but we don't know who the tares are. Well, Jesus said you will know them. He didn't say you might know them. He said you will know them by their fruit. Anyone who engages in child trafficking or implementing communism in your country is most likely a tear. End of parenthesis. I will keep going with the book. You, you can uh, deal with what I just said here, I hope. So, God is king, period. Let's now get back to the king of the kingdom. The Bible makes it clear that God is in charge. He is the king. The opening verse of this chapter, taken from Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, <clears throat> is just one of the many which testify to God's rulership as king and Lord over all. Another verse says it this way, The Lord has established his throne in the heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Every kingdom has a king. The word kingdom itself indicates the presence of a king. For many believers, though, the concept of God as king over a determined kingdom suffers somewhat of a lack of understanding. Most of us have no problem seeing God as creator, as redeemer, or even as father. But for some reason, our imagination suffers when it comes to having a clear understanding of God as a king. As I mentioned before, most of us in the West live in a democracy where the people elect a, a president or a prime minister. We have, for the most part, parted ways with the notion of a monarchy. We have become, or always were, unfamiliar with it. Oh sure, there is still a queen in England, and we are familiar with the royal family because of the tabloids and the news media. But our understanding of royalty is skewed and now limited to a glamorous and entertaining one, 
not an experiential, and dare I say, a real one. A pastor friend of mine once said, the people who hate monarchy better, better get over it quickly. God is all about monarchy and Christ is the king. And when he comes back to set up his permanent rule, there will be no question about that. Indeed, when the Lord returns, there will be no question that he's the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus hinted quite a few times during his ministry on earth that he was indeed a king. The prophet Daniel saw it in a vision too. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, he wrote, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion <clears throat> is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. <clears throat> and Jesus, when he was brought before Pilate, confirmed his kingship when pressed by the Roman governor. He said, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's from John uh, chapter 18, verses 36 and 37. Throughout the teaching based on kingdom fundamentals, I speak of many things. I bring to light many kingdom principles. These will serve you well if you uh, understand and apply them. Nevertheless, never forget throughout that if you pursue kingdom principles above his presence, you are looking for the kingdom without its king. May it never be. Anyone who seeks first the kingdom must seek it through its king, the king, Lord Jesus. And now let's talk about the culture of the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom of God. Every kingdom has a culture. Here in Canada, we are often identified as unarmed Americans with free health care who are nice. While humorous, this description does indeed aptly define Canadians in a general way anyway. We are known as a people who says sorry all the time. It sometimes behooves me just how nice, naively so, we can be. And our Southern American neighbors love to jest with us concerning this fact. I think I think they see us as pushovers, 
fortunately uh, in the news these days with the the uh, truckers convoy and canadians uh, being at the forefront of the freedom movement across the world uh, i think that uh, we're proving that we're not pushovers and that uh, that we can accomplish great things even if we stay nice and do it peacefully nevertheless while generalized it paints an accurate picture of our culture here in canada to say that canadians are unharmed unarmed americans who have free health care and who are nice we could define other cultures similarly even using just one word for example perhaps you are familiar with the following stereotypes and i'm not trying to offend anyone here but let's go for it anyway american grandiloquence french snobbism japanese ingenuity indian tech savviness german efficiency danish gloom etc these cultures can pretty much all be defined using just one word well just like earthly kingdoms the kingdom of god also has its distinct culture in fact its culture is extraordinarily strong defined and recognizable but before i define the culture of the kingdom allow me to answer the question what exactly is culture now the best definition i've ever heard of culture is this culture is best summed up by saying this is how we do things here this is how we do things here indeed culture is the answer to the question how are things done here how are things done in your house in your organization in your company in your town in your country the culture of the kingdom of god has many defining characteristics that would take me a long time to expound in fact the subject would make for a great book on its own i can only give you the crux of it here when you think about it culture is prevalent everywhere we go in other words there is a way we conduct ourselves or how things are done everywhere we go every country has a culture every company and organization has a culture every household even has a definite culture your family and mine have our own way of doing things in fact even elevators in a mall have a culture and i can prove it if you enter an elevator would you get in and face all the people while standing with your back to the door no why not because that's not how we usually behave in an elevator right usually in an elevator we get in we turn around and face the door and we also tend to avoid eye contact with others am i right so simply put this is part of the culture of an elevator this is how we do things in an elevator so what defines the culture of the kingdom of God? What is the way we do things as citizens of the kingdom? That's a good question. 
To know the culture of a kingdom, you look at what its citizens embrace and practice. When you tell people you are a born-again Christian, what image do you think comes to their mind? Well, right away, their concept of who you are becomes clearer. Am I right? For example, they know that you probably are good-natured, attend a church, read the Bible, believe in God and Jesus, and pray regularly. Additionally, knowing you are a believer makes them expect certain things of you. How many of those you work with, for example, knowing that you're a Christ follower, would be shocked if you cussed? Probably all of them. Why is that? Because cussing isn't part of the culture of the kingdom of God or of its citizens. How many would be shocked or confused if you told dirty jokes all the time? Probably all of them. They would probably even call you on it. That's the, the culture of the kingdom of God. Citizens of the kingdom of God are expected to have certain beliefs and behaviors congruent with the kingdom's culture. They are held to a very high standard, a higher standard. The culture of the kingdom is one of godly fruit. The culture of the kingdom represents the king himself. Now, citizens of the kingdom are to bear the fruit of the, kill, of the culture, which are the fruit of the spirit of its king. Those are stated in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. While this helps to identify the culture of the kingdom of God, I believe Jesus gave us the best answer to this question when he said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is from John 13, 34 and 35. By commanding a level of love that goes above and beyond normality, Jesus established the cultural benchmark of the kingdom of God. It is by this that others are to be stirred and enticed to become kingdom citizens. In other words, they will know you by your fruit and desire to know how you got that fruit. Australian missiologist, that means he was studying, he was a missionary and studying missions and teaching missions. Michael Frost said, if your neighbors did an analysis of your life, what would they learn about the kingdom? That is a good question. Love is the overarching cultural characteristic of the kingdom of God. By it, people feel the king's presence acknowledge his servants and desire to become citizens themselves. We are to live as committed 
kingdom citizens so that it provokes questions for which the gospel of Christ is the answer. Let me repeat that because it's a powerful statement. We are to live as committed kingdom citizens so, so that, in other words, we are to love our neighbor. We have to show love so that it provokes questions for which the gospel of Christ is the answer. Miles Monroe said, the kingdom is the love of God prevailing in politics, in business, in government, in media. It is all the impact of the laws of God creating a social environment where the strong help the weak, where those who have give to those who don't. It's a society where relationships are built on love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 13 also gave us a good reminder of how central love is to the kingdom of God. In his epic description of the importance of agape, transcendent, from God, coming from God love, he makes it quite clear that if we have not love, we are nothing. That's from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. In other words, as kingdom citizens, if we do not have love, we are not bringing the culture of the kingdom with us. Now, it has been said that love conquers all. If so, how does this translate for, translate for us as kingdom citizens? Many mountains left to conquer. That's my subhead. Many mountains left to conquer. There are many characters I love in the Bible, warts and all. One such character is Caleb in the Old Testament. I've always pictured Caleb as a flinty old warrior, what we would call a, forgive me my, forgive my French, but it's what he's what we would call a badass today. And we, he really was. Of the 12 spies who returned from Canaan, he was the only one, along with Joshua, who believed they could take the land even though it was populated with, populated with giants. He told Moses, let us go up at once. In other words, let's, let's do this now and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, that's faith. That's from Numbers 13.30. The least we can say is that Caleb was not easily intimidated. Even in his old age, after he had fought and won many hard battles for Israel, he still had much fight in him. He remained undeterred in his faith and in his capabilities. Let me take a sip of water. So I'm talking about Caleb. In the book of Joshua, chapter 14, verses 6 through 15, he says the following to his leader, Joshua. Caleb says, remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were at Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report. 
he's even saying he was honest. He didn't say a, an optimistic report. He said an honest report. <laughs> so he really believed it. He wasn't making things up. But my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that, so that day, Moses solemnly, solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord, my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well, as he promised for all those 45 years since Moses made this promise. Even while Israel wandered in the wilderness, today I'm 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. That's amazing. I don't know what he ate, but uh, maybe it was something in the water. <laughs> so give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land, just as the Lord said. So he's talking about the descendants of Anak, who was an Anakim. His descendants were also, most probably, very tall and powerful giants. Caleb's not intimidated. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenesite, Kenesite, because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Previously, Hebron had been called Kiriath Arba. It had been named after Arba, a great hero of the descendants of Anak. And the land had rest from war. So after Caleb's intervention, intervention the land had rest from war. Kingdom expanders are just like Caleb. They want to conquer for the Lord and his kingdom. They do not care who or what stands in their way. They have faith, they are brave, and they are bold. And likewise today, there are mountains left to conquer. And in the sight of many believers, these seem hard to take. We see these mountains as belonging to giants. And in many ways, they do. Nevertheless, we need to choose this day if we will be like Caleb and Joshua or like the other ten spies who were fearful and afraid to engage the enemy. I very much like the scene in the movie Troy where a young boy exchanges a few words with the Greek champion Achilles, who was played by Brad Pitt, right before an important duel. In the movie, Achilles is summoned by his king to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the greatest and most accomplished warrior of the rival army of Thessaly. His name was Boagrius. Boagrius is a muscle-bound mountain of a man, not unlike we would have imagined Goliath to look like. 
and the winner of the duel will spare his own army further harm. As Achilles is mounting his horse and getting ready to head into battle, there's a conversation that he has, a short exchange he has with that boy. And I used that same clip for another teaching that I did earlier. So I'm going to, I'm just going to share it with you guys. I'm going to share with you guys the clip. Take a look at this. Are the stories about you true? They say your mother is an immortal goddess. They say you can't be killed. I wouldn't be bothering with the shield then, would I? The Thessalonian you're fighting. He's the biggest man I've ever seen. I wouldn't want to fight him. That's why no one will remember your name. That's why no one will remember your name. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you remember the names of all 12 spies who were sent out to spy on the land in Numbers chapter 13? Or do you just remember the names of Joshua and Caleb? Like me, you probably only remember Joshua and Caleb. And yet, interestingly enough, the names of all the 12 spies are listed in the chapter, but no one remembers their names. So if we desire to leave a godly legacy of kingdom influence, we too, like Caleb, have mountains left to conquer. The mountains that are set before us have been listed in certain circles as the seven mountains of influence or the seven mountains of culture. This concept was revealed to men of God back in the 1970s. Yes, despite it, that concept, being deemed controversial by some, I believe it is a God-given concept and I believe it is part of his last day's plan for the church. So here are the seven mountains according to the seven mountain mandate number one the mountain of education number two the mountain of religion number three the mountain of family number four the mountain of business number five the mountain of government and military number six the mountain of arts and entertainment and number seven the mountain of media in order to take on the task of taking the land or taking the mountain or killing the giant, we first need to see it. And secondly, we need to want it. And when I say want it, I mean really want it. This, therefore, begs the question, are you all in? The disciples, and especially the apostles, were willing to leave it all behind for the sake of the kingdom. Now, the same couldn't be said of the rich young ruler. His story is told in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22, and Mark 10, verses 17 to 27. Also in Luke 18, verses 18 to 23. So it's in all three synoptic gospels. <clears throat> 
after Jesus had tested him, the rich young ruler proved incapable of entering the kingdom of God because he was overly attached to his wealth and unwilling to part with it. Back then, and today still, wealth was seen as evidence of God's favor. So when Jesus, referring to the young man, said that it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, it made the disciples worried about their own salvation. Who then can be saved? They asked Jesus. One of my favorite passages of scriptures is the ensuing conversation between a worried Peter and Jesus. Peter told Jesus, he said, See, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. That's from Luke 18, 29. What was Peter asking? Well, in effect, Peter was asking, he's just saying, he was saying to Jesus, he was saying, look, Jesus, we're all 100% in. We left it all behind as proof. So if you don't mind my asking, what's in it for us? I like the honesty of Peter. Of Peter. I've always liked his honesty. You know, a few years back, I thought I was just like the disciples in Jesus's day, all in for the kingdom's sake. On top of my full-time job with Canada Post, I had my podcast going. I used most of my free time to create content for Thriving on Purpose and write more books. I really thought I was an active and engaged kingdom citizen until one night when the Lord gave me a dream. In the dream, I was walking in a field, going up a hill. Suddenly, coming out, uh, coming up and coming out from the ground was an immense chest, a beautiful treasure chest. As I beheld the chest, it opened up to reveal a blinding light emanating from it. And then behind me, I heard a voice and I knew it was the voice of the Lord. And he asked, are you all in? Are you all in? And then I woke up. It was then that I understood that my version of being all in for the kingdom and Jesus's version were two very different things. Ever since then, I have been striving to seek the kingdom first, even more so, to be all in and find this hidden treasure in the field. Whether we like to admit it or not, many of us are like the rich young ruler. He served as a cautionary tale. Many of us want to keep something back from God, whether it's our time, money, or effort. And yet the price for entry into the kingdom and access to its glory is everything. He said to them, Jesus, that's in Mark 8, 34 and 35, he said, 
Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. It's a very hefty price tag for sure. But the rewards are, well, they are out of this world. <laughs> They're simply out of this world. And with that, the this teaching on kingdom fundamentals on the book kingdom fundamentals uh chapter one ends so we've completed chapter one again if you have not purchased this amazing kingdom book one of the most complete kingdom books on the market i urge you to do so now if you have purchased it and if you have read it and if it has blessed you and then I encourage you to go on Amazon, take two minutes and put a, a review, a positive review for the book, because guess what? Positive reviews help the book gain uh, traction. It helps the message of the kingdom to get out. And uh, so because of more of the more a book has positive reviews, the more the message, uh, the more Amazon ranks it in their algorithm and the more the message can get out. So if the message in the, the book resonated with you and you feel it's a message that should, that should be spread out so that it should go out more, then all you have to do is take the time to leave a review on the book. With that, I hope you were blessed with this, um, this great teaching on the kingdom of God. We will uh, commence next week, chapter two. Let me just check before I want to give you, I want to make you salivate a little bit. So it's funny because you write the book, right? But you still like, it's still kind of a little bit hazy. Yes. Oh man. Chapter two is going to be great. I'm going to tackle man's dominion mandate. Man's dominion mandate. This is one of my favorite chapters in the book. I can possibly say this about every chapter, but this one was really, really good because the, the chapter on man's dominion mandate, the teaching contained in it completely changed my life when i heard it the first time it was a a catalyst for 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 such a jump in my spiritual walk with god i know it's going to bless you you won't want to miss this if this teaching has blessed you make sure you share it with others and i will see you next week god bless you and uh, may you thrive on purpose